Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mount Vigil podcast. I'm Blaine. And I'm Anthony. Yeah. Anthony is here. He's got a lot on his mind. Because Just cleaning up my notes right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is the right time to do that. <laughs> I'm wondering who's going to get our mom shout out this episode. I've kind of been mulling over our, our, our faithful listeners and wanting to say hi to many of them, but... You know, it's it's a prestigious thing for a mom, like our own Lori, for example, to be mentioned in the Mount Vigil podcast. I mean, it's kind of like uh, State of the Union address in the United States, Mount Vigil podcasts, you know, number one, public platform number two. So <laughs> we should be careful. We are continuing our conversation on Revelation today. And I'm going to start with the same question I've started, I think, the previous two episodes, certainly the last show, which is, where is your mind as you come into this uh, third part on Revelation, second part really unpacking the message of the book? What are you thinking about? The thing on my mind this morning as I've reviewed my notes and added to them is I've just been delighting in the sovereignty and victory of Jesus and his rescue for his people and the faithfulness of his promises for those who are faithful, for those who persevere in Christ. So good. What about you? I don't know if this has happened to you, but I've been amazed by how applicable Revelation is, mm-hmm. by how often it, it's been appropriate in conversation since you and I have started reading and talking about it on this show, because it is the discipleship manual, the uh, you know capstone resource in the biblical stories. So just yesterday, I was having a conversation with a guy on the the season, the age of the Western Church and the different forces involved, and he was naming. Uh, basically the decline that you can, it's hard to measure like in one church, but you can actually look at data on this and the overall decline of the theology of glory in the West, Mm. which is like, I think actually McKnight may mention this in his book. If not, I'll have to remember. But it was, you know, in in the rest of the world, people tell a story like this. I was successful. I had a position in government. People love me. I encountered Jesus and I lost it all. (laughs) But I am glad because now I live in the love of God. In the United States, the story goes like this. I was a drug addict. I was a nobody. Couldn't keep my relationships together. Then I met Jesus. Now I have money. I'm leading a great company. (laughs) Oh, geez. And everything's going great for me. Wow. And that second story, which is that following Jesus will make your life great, has been ground down over time by the brute facticity of reality, by the fact that it's true. Actually, following Jesus makes your life great. But the way that takes place is the way of the Lamb by dying to self to establish the kingdom of God. And he was, so he was saying all this. And I was like, buddy, you are you are perfectly summarizing the message of Revelation, which is the kingdom is established through the faithful suffering of God's people who 
have everything and yet possess nothing. You know, all of Paul's uh, juxtapositions, it's like, it's just such an amazing resource. So that's what's on my mind as we prepare to talk about the messages to the seven churches. That's a great setting for this conversation. One of the joys of doing a deep dive in any book of the scriptures is that you find yourself almost at like any given occasion finding you know, that, that book relevant to what's happening in your life right then. Uh, and also it's taking over my imagination in my creative life. I sat down with the guitar the other day and wrote a song on the lamb with seven eyes <laughs> in like, you know, 10 minutes. And uh, also whenever you're doing a deep dive on any given book, uh, whenever I am anyways, I might be teaching, let's say out of Ephesians like I am right now, but I keep finding myself referring to Revelation previously, before that it was Matthew, et cetera. And the more deep dives you do on any given book, the more uh, your brain is just overtaken with all these, this network of connections. It's uh, a great way to live. <laughs> it is. I tell people honestly that my, when they ask, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Whichever one I'm actively yeah. studying <laughs> and where I'm spending my time. And there are some books that have spoken to me more in the long term, but mm-hmm. it's like, right now, Revelation, it's so <laughs> it's good. Amazing. It's the revelation of Jesus. That's good. I thought it might be helpful before I kick to you to remind everyone where we are. We introduced the theological message of Revelation in part one. And then in part two, we said we were going to unpack the actual form and content of the book. What are the major beats? Who are the major characters? And we'll probably spend three episodes doing that, and this is the second episode. So in the first episode of Unpacking, which was last week's, we said Revelation has no easy structure to identify because it has been written um, very carefully, basically to erase the divisions that would characterize something like a Pauline letter. Even so, there are useful uh, divisions in the book that help a person kind of experience the forward momentum of the letter. And so we, borrowing from, borrowing, taking from uh, Richard Balcom, I borrowed this. (laughs) Um, He identified the reality that since it's a circular letter, Balcom reasons that the structure has to be accessible on first hearing. But as an apostolic prophetic apocalypse, it has to yield more meaning as you sit with the text. So he identified the cue in the spirit. The phrase in the spirit, which occurs three times in the book, signals the big divisions in the story. So he said, Revelation has a prologue, which is epistolary, and it's chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Then it has a vision of the risen Christ, part two, inside of which are nested the prophetic addresses to the seven churches, which we'll get into in this episode. Then part three, you have a vision of heaven, the throne room of God, inside of which significantly the sequences of judgments are all nested. They're all situated inside the revelation of Jesus as the king of the universe. Then beginning in chapter 17, because most of Revelation is those three cycles of judgments plus 10 or so interludes. Mm-hmm. 
Near the end of the book, you get a distinct movement in 17, 1 through chapter 21, 8, which is the fall of Babylon contrasted with the coming of the new Jerusalem, the fate of these two cities. And then uh, chapters 21, chapter 21 through 22, 9, you actually get the fulfillment of the prophetic promises to the seven churches from the earlier part of the book in the vision of the new Jerusalem, the marriage of heaven and earth. And then you get an epilogue in verse 22, which is also epistolary and it seals the blessing of the letter. This is in the show notes, uh, but where we're going right now is we've covered the prologue, kind of. <laughs> we covered the, me- the vision of the risen Christ, kind of. Everything we cover will be kind of. And we <laughs> introduced, not just now, but permanently. <laughs> And we started talking about the messages to the seven churches, which is where we're going to pick up today. And the messages to the seven churches begin in chapter two of Revelation, but they really begin in chapter one with the vision of Jesus who is giving all the messages. So all that background, Ant-Man, take us away. Messages to the seven churches. Yeah, so Revelation... One through three, chapters one through three, set up a lawsuit dealing with the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of the churches and of the church at large. And it also begins to set up a case against the nations, but primarily what's in view for chapters one through three is a a lawsuit, an interrogation of the faithfulness of the churches. And this serves the purpose of sifting the faithful from the unfaithful with the promise that the faithful will be included in God's divine counsel. There'll be pillars. Um, there are different ways that John talks about them being included in, in the divine counsel. And having done that, it then flows in chapter four and on into uh, this divine courtroom scene in which the nations are judged. And those faithful witnesses become participants and witnesses to the judgments of Christ throughout history. So right now, there, uh, there's a very neat, uh, a very meaningful, logical flow from what's happening now to that, that chapter four courtroom scene. But it begins, uh, and this is instructive to us, the first thing that we can notice is that God's judgments begin with his own people, with the church. And he's calling and, out- I'm sorry, can I pause? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Because we talked about the judgment of God before and how it's a thing to be desired. Yes. You in particular talked about the light of God's judgment, and we made an argument that God's judgment is revelation. It shows things as they are. And for God to reveal things in good time unto repentance is really good news because everyone eventually, whoever they have become, will be exposed to the God who is himself the consuming fire. So, these are merciful pointed messages. This is the essential perspective that we must have for the entire revelation and for the revelation of Christ throughout history. The the revelation of Christ is a judgment. Um, Where the light shines, the truth comes out. Every single thing hidden becomes exposed. And for us to realize this is all mercy. God's judgments are good. We actually want the judgments of God to be doled out, but 
only from a perspective of Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and uh, from the perspective of those who are actually faithful, who are walking with Jesus. This otherwise, if if we don't see that, especially as we get into the sevens, it's just terrifying, and God seems like a tyrant, and it just kind of it, it can actually be a bit nihilistic to see the suffering of humanity as whether or not it's the consequences of their sin throughout history, but to realize that God is love and all he does is for the purpose of bringing people back into unity, union with him, that all of this really is his mercy. And if we were to be left in our, in, in our sins to live eternally, we'd simply be demons. These nether sta- sayings for bumper stickers from Anthony Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at Ephesus and I'm wondering how deep to go in each of these. And I think what I think the solution is, you tell me what you think, is to point out what seems relevant as we move through uh, and just see what happens. Because there's beauty in each of these addresses. But we have to speed up. But we have to get moving. I'm not doing 22 episodes on okay. this text. I'm with you. Uh, to survey the the, the 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 structure of the letters overall, we have Jesus speaking to the angel of the seven churches and uh, through John, and he encourages them for their faithfulness, and he uh, judges them for their unfaithfulness, and he makes promises, uh, promised outcomes for both groups, and he tells them all to listen. Exactly. Eugene Peterson and his book on Revelation. The title of which I don't love so much, but it's called Thunder Reversed. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's like classic 1992 level I know. Book title right there. And, but amazing book. And he says, each of these have the structure that you just said, Anthony, an affirmation, a correction, and a motivating promise. Mm-hmm. And then if you key into the motivating promise, they're all fulfilled in the end of the book of Revelation. Mm. What I think is fascinating to call attention to, to, to in these is the affirmations are pretty amazing. They show you what is normative. And so look at them. Ephesus, here's from God. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Well, clearly this is not written to post-Reformation Protestants because God doesn't care about deeds or hard work or perseverance. It's all grace. That was an attempt at a joke, Anthony. You're free to laugh. Sorry, I was reading my notes and missed what you just said. Well, I said... (laughs) (laughs) Deeds, hard work, and perseverance. Not everyone's favorite uh, apostolic message, but it's affirmed as an essential part of following Jesus. Like, I see what you're doing with your time. Good job. I see that you are uh, training hard to take on the nature of Christ. Great job. You're persevering in the face of difficulty and moral drift. Well done. Wow. So that's all normal. Uh, And then it keeps going. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people and have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Also pretty amazing that that's good job, normal part of the Christian life. Uh, You have endured hardships. You have not grown weary. And then these things in the middle, like what is happening? And I would characterize every message pretty much. As what is happening is that following Jesus is hard 
and all of these churches are worn down hmm. and on varying levels beginning to compromise. So the Ephesus just kills me where it says you've lost the love you had at first. See how far you've fallen. Like, look what's happened. And it's really easy. I mean, it's right of the teachings of Jesus. It's really easy for love to grow cold, especially in the face of the difficulty of following Jesus. What is the solution to that? Beholding the cosmic Christ literally being transformed by his image, because they all begin with, here's who he is, receiving the call to repentance, and then clinging to a real promise, which is a thing you're supposed to hold on to. Listen to this. They all end. So, verse 7 in chapter 2, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You may remember the tree of life from Genesis chapter 2. You will see it in the final chapters again at the marriage of heaven and earth in Revelation. But it's that motivating promise. Remember that where history is going that consoles a weary people. The only other thing that I want to say about the messages to the churches is that Every single one of them should basically hit home with everyone who reads this book. Do you disagree? (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. But my encouragement in applying these judgments in your own church context is not to do so from the perspective of the righteous judge who is now going to go, go to your gathering next Sunday or whatever your next gathering is and sit in a critical position uh, just judging everyone around you for their unfaithfulness or their reliance on riches or whatever whatever specific sin you see called out in these seven churches. In other words, the conviction has to begin with yourself. And uh, a side note here is that we get this simultaneous level of culpability and independence that I think reflects the Trinitarian nature of like the Trinitarian grounding of what it means to be a person. And so these churches are culpable corporately, but also for several of them, after the the corporate judgment, God, Jesus then calls out the ones who are faithful, he separates them in his judgments and says, you will still be blessed. And so we have this simultaneous sense of we're all uh, part of the same iniquitous, sinful organization, and yet we're all personally responsible as well. Coming back to this main point, uh, it can be really easy to read these and to assume that you are on the good side of all these judgments and the people that you gather with aren't or the church down the street, etc. If, if, if our response isn't Lord have mercy and isn't like deep conviction and uh, like a desperate request for assistance and for power and life to be the faithful witnesses that earn the place and are gifted the place in the divine council, um, then we're really missing the point. And this can apply to your family, to your personal life, and to your church gatherings, all of these, uh, all of these judgments and, and blessings. Yeah. You could do a whole sermon series, and I'm sure many people have, on these seven messages and on the kinds of things. But if, before we move on to the courtroom scene, I would point out Wow, um, what are some of the things in the church 
False teaching is one that pops up again and again. And being commended for testing teaching and finding out whether it's true or false. Mm. And being condemned for not doing that and going along with teaching that plays to disordered desires, that plays to the flesh in people, drags Mm. them deeper into bondage to the world. It is pretty vital to point out that the two things that get called out most are sexual sin and idolatry, which, by the way, if you're new to the Bible, that's kind of how it is. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, so the two big problems, uh, these two representative issues in the human condition get expressed in idolatry, idolatry, <laughs> and sexual immorality, and it's good that we're eventually going to do maybe a show on a biblical view of sexuality because there is no higher view. In, in, in any, you know, take the combined wisdom of the human tradition or so-called wisdom. There's no view of the body that is as high as the Christian view. There's nothing that is like as intensely sensuous. There simply is not. Mm. Um, and so you go, okay, well, I'm sure these people were... Uh, having too much sex with prostitutes and, you know, no one in my church is doing that. And I'd say, first of all, people in your church are doing that. Let's just do a reality <laughs> check. <laughs> You've never been more on the leadership side um, of what, like, the normal human condition is. It's everywhere. Um, it's like, and I tell people often, it doesn't help anyone to treat uh, the biblical vision of sin as extreme, right? Like, who are you helping by saying, that is so crazy, no one would ever do that? And be like, how about, like, that is really messed up. Lord, have mercy. I'm glad there's redemption available in such a dire situation. Mm. But what they're doing probably has a lot more to do with, you know, business places are in temples. And I would just put it as they're far more open to, uh, like, loose Honestly, just lose personal boundaries. They're far more open to titillation for one thing, because to like go to the temple is at best mildly pornographic. Um, and then the, you know, the social cultural boundaries um, in each of these cities for where a person can take their heart for gratification are about as loose as ours are today. And so... In every case, people are accepting the invitation of the world in some way to be fed in a way that is not going to lead to their flourishing and is actually contrary to the way of Jesus. And so I was reading Jay Stringer, and I said this line to you offline last time, but he said, you know, all cultures worship and everywhere we worship, you will find the temple prostitutes. Mm. And just looked at, yeah, um, where in everyday life is it normal to get a hit on our cavernous need for love and pleasure outside communion with God? Basically anywhere. And it's very easy for all of us to rationalize our way out of doing it. Um, And the solution isn't diehard legalism. It's these letters. It's the address of Christ. 
It's asking for the light of revelation to cover our lives. We'd say, like, Lord Jesus, what in my life is not pleasing to you that you're looking at right now? Okay, I repent, and, here, and I am going to rearrange my life to bring this under, to bring this into submission. Hmm. Whether it's your money, or your time, or your entertainment, or your friends, or your fantasy life, whether your fantasy life is about sex, or travel, or power, or just being adored in front of a crowd, like uh, Ronald Rollheiser writes that the thing about formation in Christ is not that we will no longer have any fantasies, it's that they will not be sinful. Mm. And that our, what we fantasize about, that the geography of our desire and imaginations will be in alignment with God's purposes for the world. It, we will still have a rich fantasy life until Christ comes, because that's one way of being anchored in the kingdom to come, but it will be submitted to Jesus. So, The distinction that you made between the solution is not to become diehard legalists, but it does require that we rearrange our lives is really important, because there is an unfortunate and predominant, I would say, strain of evangelical Christianity specifically that based on uh, poorly structured arguments about faith and works and faith as belief and works as uh, like earning our way into salvation, uh, we miss basically half of the New Testament that simply says, do these things, live this way. And so there is a response required. There is action required. Um, and we, we we don't have to go fully down this rabbit hole of the difference between uh, or the the integration of salvation by faith alone and salvation by works, you know James versus Paul uh, as they're flatly read and so on. But I just want to call out the importance of we actually have to change our lives um, if we are paying lip service to Jesus as the one who did it all, so I don't have to, but then continuing to walk in the way of Babylon, these judgments still apply to us. Uh, And I guess that's all I'll say about that. I wanted to list the the sins of the churches as I've identified them, and we have disordered loves. So what are the things that you value? What are the things, again, that you fantasize about that, that motivate you in your daily life? Disordered loves, disordered... Teachings, so yeah, false teachings, corrupted worship, failure to walk in the way of the Lamb, so failure to go in the lower, sacrificial, humble way, uh, trust in earthly riches, idolatry, and sexual sin. And what were the three categories on the positive side that you described? Endurance, or perseverance, and then two others? Perseverance, good works... And I just read them out of chapter two. Oh, yeah, that was in Ephesus. In Ephesus. I just wanted to add a, f- a fourth. That hard work, deeds, perseverance. Hard work, deeds, perseverance. The fourth one I would add is something like uh, righteously, righteous humiliation, uh, righteously living in, in the way of little power in, in the sense that the world uses power and little resources and faithfulness with that. That might be a subset of perseverance, but I think it's kind of its own thing that relates to the way of the lamb. 
it's going to be hard to skip over these seven churches. I have endless, not endless, I have a lot of really cool notes on yeah. each of the seven churches. Is there anything specific out of these seven that you've been excited about before we move on? That's a great question. Recommendation. We've told you to go get Scott McKnight's book, if any of this is interesting to you. Told you to go get the more expensive and harder to get Michael Gorman's book. Um, But they really dive into the situation of these seven churches. And it it is just worth your time. Um, Rather than king in on one of the seven churches, I want to double down on the, the simple reality that following Jesus will cost you and that that's what's on the table for these churches. And that's what's on the table for us as we consider the message of the book of Revelation. And as we begin to feel the weight of this text, one of the things that we start to realize is, wow, our, you know, and our whole last episode on Revelation is going to be about what this is costing us in our lives, where this is getting worked out in the season that we're in. But Man, you know, part of it is like, this will, it will cost you in terms of the kind of phone you can have. It will cost you whether you can get an Apple Vision Pro headset. It will cost you in the amount of money that you allow yourself to live on. It will cost you in uh, the kind, like the number of possessions period that you allow yourself to own. It will cost you in what you allow yourself to give your attention to. And all of these things are kind of alien concepts, I think, in in a lot of the church here in the U.S. outside, like, highly dogmatic uh, expressions of Christianity that have their own problems. And the annoying thing is that, you know, when someone does the right thing in the wrong way, it sometimes kind of poisons the right thing, um, which is... I think we have to work through, and I think all rooms of the church have these accusations against each other, which is like, you charismatic folks have the Holy Spirit, but you're also, you know, irresponsible in the application to the gifts. And be like, that may or may not be true. You don't know. But also, the Holy Spirit's really important. <laughs> and it's like, you dogmatic folks don't care at all about the formation of Christ in people's hearts. You just care about them doing the right thing. Be like, that may or not, may not be true. You honestly don't know. Uh, but also... Behavior matters, so no throwing out deeds with the bathwater. So when I look at the message to the seven churches, uh, what happens to me is I go, oh my gosh, Jesus expects the churches to be living in alignment with the Sermon on the Mount. And then I ping over to Matthew and go, this really is the Jesus Christ roadmap for living. And then read it, guys. (laughs) And... um. And by the end, you'll will probably with me be saying, Jesus, have mercy. I'm in process. I throw myself on your mercy. Bring your conviction and empower me to live in the way that you desire. Because like an honest evaluation of any one of our lives, um, I think it would actually, it would, it would kind of devastate most people, which is why it's the kindness of God that he like unpacks people slowly and... I've heard so many spiritual director types who say that the progressive revelation of a person's life to themselves by God is one of the great mercies of God. Mm. It's like, yeah, you know, if you were to see kind of the the entire disalignment of your soul right now, it would be more than you could handle. So just just this one thing, 
I just want to talk to you about how much time you spend watching Netflix. It's not wrong to watch Netflix. I just want to talk to you about time and who you're becoming. But which of the messages stands out to you? Hmm. This last point that you made is so important that it will cost you everything. And just as a prompt to listen to our next episode, maybe the one after that, depending on how far we get, that our whole last episode will basically be about applying this and how we read our times through this book and how it challenges our lives and, and marks of, of the beast that we have, <laughs> stuff like that. I'm not above that, even though we're going to challenge the the typical way of of reading those things. Um, and I, I, as you were saying, it will cost you this and will cost you that. I just wanted to keep going. Like it will cost you uh, submitting your faculty of reproduction in your marriage to God. It will cost you your, your money and your economy and the things that you think are yours and that you steward according to best principles or the way the world does, according to good advice. It will cost you all of your resources as you are led by the Spirit and are challenged by the witness of the suffering church. It will cost you your habits of intellect. I was just going to say it will cost you every thought that you think. The way I'm I'm experiencing this right now is um, I've got a few bad habits of thought that recently in the last few months, I guess, the Holy Spirit has really convicted me of. Certain individuals or things that come up that really irritate me, and and I found myself going through this loop of just becoming angry or judgmental or whatever my fleshly response is to this irritant in my life. And I was given the task or the response to that, that I was, that I was assigned was to every time this person in a way that is fleshly <laughs> comes to my thought or that this circumstance, um, I had to pray for that person and bless them. And thanks for praying for it, me it, so much, man. It's actually, wow. it's actually helped me, uh, like it's it's kind of annoying because it was te- it made me realize how much of my thought process uh, was taken over with these fleshly repeating loops, and just the irritation of having to like take so much time out of my day or t- to keep interrupting my flow of work to pause, repent, and bless that person has actually uh, made that habit diminish. Anyway, so like literally every thought that you think is on the table for being conformed to the way of Christ. I love what you said so much. I want to just draft because a thing happened for me this year, which is I had just picked up, you know, all of my holds from the library, among which were some very exciting history books. Mm. And I was driving home. I just had this kind of like odd feeling in my stomach. I'm like, I honestly don't think any of these books are bad. But when I tune into the Holy Spirit, what I feel from God is him say to me, I want control of your library. (laughs) I was like, library? No, I want to read what I want when I want. <laughs> and too far. I'm like, I, it was seriously, I was like, I want to read these books. And he's like, silence. I'm like, dang it, dang it, dang it. So, long story short, man, I like left the books by my bookshelf in my book bag for like a week. <laughs> and occasionally they'd be like, maybe I'm going to, maybe, what if I just read the introduction of one? Um, and I'd feel just from the Holy Spirit, like, God, Jesus, you really want say. You want to be the master (laughs) of my inputs. Um, And it was like, fine. Okay. 
Okay, what I give up is uh, basically being the master of my content. And there, there's a seasonality to all of these things, but these are just recent examples of like something that following Jesus uh, requires. Man, just last night, I uh, opened up a video player, a media player, and there's a movie that I really wanted to see. And in a certain season of my life, let's say not that long ago, I would just automatically watch it because it sort of checks the boxes of interest to me. And I had this wrestling session, which it wasn't the first time with this particular movie. It's happened like five times where like in my flesh, my, my flesh was like, that's a movie that would make me, I don't know, satisfy these desires. Uh, it's just a very violent movie. And um, yeah, the spirit was like, I told you no, nope. And uh, it was just this little, it felt like my flesh and the spirit within me being like a toddler and a parent, basically. Uh, it's, it's very humbling, the, the little battlefields in our lives. The one thing I want to say out of these seven churches, the last thing I want to say, the main thing on my mind, especially this morning, is when you take all the promises, the good promises, the promises for those who persevere, who are faithful, who do good works, who walk in the way of Christ, um, when you put them all together, you have this rich picture of the blessings to come. And we mostly, in culture at least, in pop in the pop culture approach to Christianity, we mostly talk about going to heaven when we die. We die and we go to heaven, and that is just a, there's there, there's no definition to it, but it's eternal bliss. And we, you know, it's it's like the it's like the good place, the TV show, the good place picture of heaven, where you just there are no constraints and you get to satisfy all all your desires. Some sort of lame nihilistic hedonism. But the picture that we are given of what's to come is. Reigning with Christ in the resurrection as members of his divine council. The letter to Thyatira in chapter 2, verses 26, he says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received the authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. This is, if I, if I, if you didn't know better, you would think this ruling with the rod of iron language was applying to Jesus, and of course it does, but he is saying that those who are faithful, he will give authority over the nations. So I, I think the invitation in these letters is to have a much richer, more uh, meaningful, more awe-inspiring picture of, of the promises of what's to come is that we will share in Christ's authority and administer creation with him into eternity. It's helpful to not just be negatively motivated. There is negative incentive in these letters, but the positive incentive is something that, I mean, you can meditate on it for years and still not fully grasp the import of, of this concept that we keep talking about, divine counsel. Yes. I know. <sighs> It's my opinion that in our time, the concept, like beautifully conveyed, of investing into eternity is not adequately talked about. And it's amazing, it's like money. Uh, investing it here looks like, you know, certain kinds of buying. Ultimately, it looks like buying. Investing it into eternity 
largely looks like giving. And you can take kind of basically any category and go, Jesus is pro-satisfaction, y'all. He is the satisfier of your soul. And this anchor uh, in the kingdom is not to be trifled with. And is it's, it's a real motivating trade-off of, do I have to get it all now? Or am I actually willing to live in such a way that believes the resurrection? And so, be like, getting it now looks like power and living. Getting it later looks like service and dying. Like, at, at a certain point in most domains, we do have to make these choices. And they're not easy. So, having a full and rich picture of the kingdom to come is vital. Mm. The book that, if, you, if, if what Blaine just said inspires you, the book that you need to read is Money, Possessions, and Eternity by Randy Alcorn, which is a, his attempt at a systematic theology of money, possessions, and eternity, and how our lives should be focused on eternity and what we do with our resources now is investing that will either bring reward or loss. And what he does in that book that's brilliant, you open this book on money, and after an introduction, he gives the, he starts talking about heaven, which is you know slightly evangelical language, but he's on the money in terms of uh, he gets he gets the promise mm. and spends a long time describing the life on offer, which is uh, I don't know it's such a test uh, it testifies to how wise um, Randy Alcorn is in that domain in particular. So, all right. We are going to do this. We are going to get through the throne room vision and all three sevens because we're only at 42 minutes. Um, we're just going to knock out chapters 4 through 16, no problem. Okay. So, uh, chapter 4, how do you want to start? Well, I already mentioned before the churches that having judged the churches and having established who are the faithful witnesses, we now have a scene in which... Um, the lamb, the righteous lamb is revealed, and those witnesses uh, now are it's, – it's almost like in a dream where scenes keep changing and the characters are in different contexts, etc. But the, the, the narrative flows. The faithful witnesses are now the divine counsel in the courtroom scene who are witnessing what's to come. So we talked about the courtroom some, and the number of images – I'm, I'll just talk about one that get pulled together. Um, my personal favorite is from Exodus 24, when the elders of Israel go up and see God on Sinai, which is, you know, an event that never appears in the children's Bibles, um, where, you know, it's the confirmation of the covenant, an altar is built, Moses sacrifices bulls, half of the blood goes on the altar, half of it goes into a big basin. He holds it up before the people and says, behold the blood of the covenant. Um, no illusions there, nothing re relevant going on there. Sprinkles it on the people, they go up and see God, um, and then they have a feast in the presence of God. So uh, this is Exodus 24, starting in verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli as bright blue as the sky. Okay, so we're talking about this sea of glass here, this ocean of splendor in front of God. Uh, 
And then it says, but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Mm. Jump forward to Revelation and you have the rainbow circling the throne, um, the seven spirits of God in front of the throne in verse six. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And then he goes on to riff primarily on Ezekiel and the four living creatures. And we talked a little bit last time, but what's most on my mind um, for the courtroom is to talk about what the courtroom is for Mm. in the story of God. What is top of mind for you in, you know, highlighting what's going on in this vision of heaven? In this courtroom scene, the divine counsels and the living creatures who are cherubim slash seraphim, the angels, the the saints are called together to witness that Jesus as the slain lamb is the one who is worthy to unroll this single scroll that has seven seals on it that are that contain the judgments of God, the cosmic judgments of God unfolding throughout history, not just at the end of history, but unto the end of history. And that he is the one who is is worthy as the, the pure and spotless lamb who has re- returned from Hades. And that these judgments un- unveiled in these cycles of seven throughout history are, again, as we said earlier, mercies. They are calls to repentance. And they're opportunities for those who have not repented and turned in allegiance to Christ to do so. Love it. We talked about the juxtaposition of seeing and hearing. The main thing I would say about 4 and 5 in Revelation is John's been in prayer. He has this vision of Christ. He gets these messages to the churches, and he's in the Spirit. He's in prayer again, and boom, he's blasted up, and he's about to see reality according to Jesus. And the main thing that he sees is... Jesus, the slain lamb, presiding over God's divine counsel, his own divine counsel, and he is the architect of history. So is history going in a good direction? Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a certain kind of Is that a comforting reality? Yes, it is. You know, that saying, like, don't worry, God is in control. Well, this is kind of the ultimate, like, God is in control and... His vision of ordinary life is far more intense than our vision of ordinary life. And that should actually be really comforting. It strikes me as being extremely pastoral that what these churches are going through is moral drift in a pagan culture. And what they see in the spirit is these beasts going back and forth and wars between demons and angel armies and be like, wow, so... I think we primarily reserve those stories for missionaries throwing down with witch doctors in the developing world. But if you're here in the first world going, man, I'm just having a really hard time. I think some of the incentives at work are just messing with my mind. Mm. You are in the story of Revelation. <laughs> you are in the, the epicenter of this epic where God is presiding with his people over history Uh it's a beautiful vision also of the sovereignty of God, this deliberation. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Not everything that happens is God's will, yet he's actively engaging his creation to steer 
history towards the marriage of heaven and earth. Mm. And then inside this vision of the potency of God, you get this massive, massive, uh, theologically packed ultra picture of what's going on. Kind of like all capital letters. Man, doesn't it feel like we're living in a crazy time after the ascension of Jesus? What's going on? Well, according to Jesus, this is what's going on. God's perfect judgment against evil to bring people to repentance shot through with meaning and assigned characters and nuance. We said at the beginning of this conversation, not today, but the whole series on Revelation, that the book of Revelation is a discipleship discipleship manual. And we need to realize that every single day, believers are invited into the way of martyrdom. That this image of the martyrs throughout the, the the revelation certainly applies to those who have been faithful unto death, but that the invitation to take up your cross daily is an invitation to martyrdom. And that the oppression of the beasts, we live under that in the West, in whatever country you are in, and the temptation of the prostitute, we are subject to that every single day. So this great cosmic war in the way of martyrdom is is our current context. A really cool thing about chapters four and five, and this is an observation from Beale and Carson. I, I mentioned Beale last time. Beale and Carson wrote a commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, which is pretty awesome. And they identify these 14 parallels between Daniel 7 uh, and Revelation 4 and 5. And I, I won't bother pairing up exactly what verses go with which in each book, um, but we can include those in the notes. But here are the 14 steps that are in both. There's an introductory vision. There is the setting of the throne in heaven. There's God sitting on the throne, the description of God's appearance on the throne, fire before the throne, heavenly servants surrounding the throne, books before the throne, the opening of the books, a divine messianic figure approaching God's throne in order to receive authority to reign forever over a kingdom. This kingdom includes all peoples, nations, and tongues. The seer's emotional distress on account of the vision this year's reception of heavenly counsel concerning the vision from one among the heavenly throne servants. Step 13, the saints are also given divine authority to reign over a kingdom. And finally, a concluding mention of God's eternal reign. The parallels are pretty awesome once you actually look at the verses. Uh, again, it'd be impossible to do on a podcast. But for anyone that thinks uh, because this is an actual vision that John is not working with the Old Testament, uh, good luck. Good luck with that. Uh, a cool thing about the Sea of Glass uh, in, in verse 6 of chapter 4, the picture I have is like, you know, if you're in a boat that has a glass bottom and you're looking down in the water, or if you're up on a skyscraper and there's a glass floor and on a on a balcony and you can look down and see the city. The Sea of Glass, I think, is a picture of below the courtroom, below the throne room, there being this plane and under which is the earth. Uh, so the sea of glass being this, being the heavens, basically. Yeah, and, the firmament, the, firmament from Genesis 1. Yeah, and this heavenly view on the things of the earth. It's a really striking image. That's epic. The 24 elders are the, uh, a picture of the divine council. There's a ton that we could say about them. Uh, there, there are lots of attempts to identify what they are, the 12 patriarchs and 12 disciples, etc. But certainly... Symbolically, they speak to a divine council. Yes. I, let's 
Do you have more? Well, I mean, no. <laughs> Silly question. Is there more that you want to say? Oh my gosh. On the courtroom vision before we move inside, you know, you get this courtroom vision and then this long picture of events that are proceeding from the throne of God, which are the three cycles of seven judgments and the one secret cycle. (laughs) I really hope you know what that secret cycle is about. I'm not sure if I do, actually. Um, I I know that there's a fourth cycle of seven. Yeah, I don't know. I honestly, yeah. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, that's the one where uh, the seven signs. Yeah. Yes. Don't don't, look. Don't say what you saw. That part. (laughs) And so he doesn't, and he's still not talk about it. Oh, so. And most theologians follow the instructions given to John, and they are like, he's told not to talk about it. So it kind of seems like we're not supposed to talk about it. I had this whole set of notes on uh, the concept of a new song. So in chapter five, the scroll and the lamb. My, I had to update my, my notes to be the scroll, the lamb, and the new song starting in 5.9. And uh, I'm, I, it's interesting to me because my, for my, my personal substack, I've been working on an essay on the concept of a new song inspired by a quote from Plato's Republic that I just noticed recently. Um, and it opens up the concept of the songs in general in Revelation. So we, oh. we, could, we could talk about songs as a thing in, in the Revelation, or we can move on from that to the leading intro or, you know, tease and go on to the sevens. I would love to hear you say something about songs in Revelation because if you were new to the book of Revelation and you began with the question, what is it? What's here? I think you would be shocked how many hymns and spirituals and blessings, but how much music there is in the book. Mm. It, it punches you right in the face. And many of the most famous compositions, not, you know, Handel's Messiah, for example, in West, the Western musical tradition come out of Revelation. Mm. Holy, holy, holy. Love that one, actually. <laughs> and so what do you want to say about the music and the fact that the revelation overflows with song? I will try to be concise here. So Trumper Longman, your best friend, your man crush, wrote an interesting essay, which we'll link to, called The Divine Warrior, The New Testament Use of an Old Testament Motif. And he says, in the book of Revelation, this is a a section, one of the sections of that essay is on the concept of new song. In the book of Revelation, there's a lot of singing. Two of these songs are particularly designated as new songs, Revelation 5.9 and 14.3. In the light of the awareness of the divine warrior motif in the book of Revelation, new song has the particular meaning of victory shout. That is, a song of praise in response to or in anticipation of the victory of the divine warrior. And he goes on, he gives an example from Psalm 149 as having set a precedent for this. Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. May the praise of God be in their throats and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the judgment written against them. This is the glory of all his saints. Now, the other day I was 
in my backyard. <laughs> this thing I do on the weekends is I'll, I'll sunbathe in the backyard and then listen to audiobooks. And I was listening to a wonderful recording of the Republic, Plato's Republic. And Socrates said this thing that just totally had me set up straight and, and take notes. So Socrates has... This is kind of this. I, I won't go too far down this rabbit trail. Socrates talks about Damon, who whom he names with this very familial, uh, kind of like disturbingly familiar um, way. In a disturbingly familiar way, he he names Damon, who is the spirit that lives in his head and gives him insight into the nature of things. Okay, that, in so, case you didn't know, that's a thing for Plato. Thing <laughs> Moving for, on, yeah. Uh, so I can't remember who Socrates is speaking to, Glaucon or Adam, is it Adamantes? Adam, anyways, Adam, it's not Adamantium because that's, that's Wolverine. <laughs> okay, so here's the quote. For any musical innovation is full of danger to the whole state and ought to be prohibited. So Damon says, and I quite believe him. He says that when the modes of music change, the fundamental laws of the state always change with them. So as soon as I heard that quote, I was thinking about the scriptural concept of new song. And in researching for Revelation, I found Trimper Longman's essay, and it kind of put it all together. So our worship is spiritual warfare, and we shake the heavenlies when we worship. We are participating in and celebrating Jesus as the divine warrior who shakes the human principalities, the spiritual principalities, and... Uh, the sword all throughout Revelation is the words of Jesus. So this idea that Plato observed millennia ago, that when the modes of music change, the fundamental laws of the state always change with them, this should give us an incredible sense of sobriety when we gather with the believers on a given Sunday or in any other context and sing worship songs. We're not just trying to hype up our feelings. We're not just repeating a dead ritual. We are actually participating uh, this ode to joy of Jesus as the divine warrior who destroys all of his enemies and sets things straight. So that's a context for us as we go throughout the whole revelation in which there are many songs. That was so good. I'm so glad we didn't skip that note. Also, I did not know that line from Socrates, and that is brilliant. So I'm glad you brought that. Looking at the three cycles of seven, I I have kind of a framing statement, which is, actually, by a framing statement, I mean probably about a five-minute monologue, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because there's going to be some quotes. We all knew that was coming. Um, Sorry, guys. So, you can find all over the scholarly literature something like this idea. I'm going to use, it was a coin toss. Mitchell Ruddish or Michael Gorman, since I've been using Michael Gorman, I'm going to use him again, um, who's talking about the nar- there is a narrative development to the three cycles, but it's not, strictly speaking, linear. Like, it's just not left behind. And he says, this narrative movement is called recapitulation. This is not to negate the claim that Revelation has a plot Rather, we must recognize that the plot unfolds like a symphony with variations on the main theme as the piece moves towards its goal. This nonlinear movement means that an outline of the book is more like a spiral, a series of connected circles that move forward. I included the word spiral, Anthony, primarily to troll you because I know you have no thoughts about that, (laughs) Uh, and say, 
do the three cycles of seven have movement? Yes, they do. Out of Babylon into the kingdom of God. Do they overlay and add depth to the season of the eschaton, the period between the ascension and the return of Christ? Yes, they do. The other thing I want to say is that these three sevens, right? Three is a number of perfection. Seven is a number of perfection. And so you have perfect, perfect. Uh, the, the perfect purification of evil. God fully cleanses his world. And I have a quote from Miroslav Wolf, the Croatian theologian. It's one of my favorite quotes ever, actually. And then uh, an observation of what, what do we have to keep in mind about what God's judgment is? We said it at the beginning, but you can't forget when you start getting into these things. But I love, here's um, from Wolf, his book, Free of Charge. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed, and my people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being it. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Mm. So chew on that one for a minute. Um, Why I want to start with that quote is we're entering this sequence of divine judgments that are issued from the courtroom of God. And... It, there does have a progression, which we'll, I think, in our third part, you know, piecing out, parsing out Revelation, we'll get into more, but it's out of Babylon into the New Jerusalem. So, like, in the first cycle of seven, the kings of the earth are hiding in caves. By the last cycle of seven, they've repented and are coming into the kingdom of God. And there are all of these juxtapositions between the situation of humanity before judgment, the situation of humanity after judgment. But the number one thing that gets referenced in the judgments is the Exodus, which is judgment on the gods of Egypt and is an event into which anyone can put up their hand to be a part of God's new project. And so uh, a couple other things that are helpful is, and, and this isn't to, whenever you talk about God's judgment, you know, it's like, you have to say the words, I'm not trying to explain away. Well, I've said that now. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm trying to tell you some things that you ought to know uh, <laughs> about God's judgment, which we have said is just the presence of God showing things as they are. It's not the only thing it is, or maybe some of these could fit inside that. You have a biblical theme of God giving people what they want, like uh, God's heart, Pharaoh's heart. Most people know that God hardened Pharaoh's heart during the Exodus event. Most people skip the fact that for more than half of the plagues, Pharaoh does that himself. And he's called to repent over and over. And then the line says, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so finally, God gives him what he wants. And our boy Tim Mackey has a wonderful teaching on this, on God just releasing the world back to chaos. Um, 
when people insist on pursuing evil, they are finally allowed to because of the honor that's bestowed on human freedom, right? Blaise Pascal's line was the dignity of causation. So you're not seeing in Revelation like a reversal of the rules from the rest of the Bible, which is, I think, what many people in the evangelical West experience with Revelation, which is like, God died, but now he's coming back with a sword and just line up the heads, just swing, swing, swing. Um, Be like, okay. His way of bringing the kingdom is by dying, and these cycles of what are divine judgment is both giving people what they want and confronting with the presence of God and letting human sin and uh, depraved spiritual intelligences run amok so that people will repent. You and I are fans of the Lord of Spirits, so they talk about the whole theology of foul spirits in ancient Judaism is that they're allowed to remain on the earth to afflict people so that it will come to repentance, which is an idea that shows up in Paul's letters, excommunicate people from the church so that they will actually deal with the consequences of their sin and actually repent. Like, let it get bad if there's no other way. That's my introduction to the three sevens. (laughs) What else do you want to say uh, by way of framing these big beats before we key in on uh, particular symbols and yeah, you mentioned the word in that first quote, recapitulation. Robert Thomas, who wrote a fantastic uh, The Revelation Exegetical Commentary, this two-volume series, he calls it telescopic recapitulation, which I think is the perfect technical or academic definition for what we call the spiral view of history. So recapitulation is the past kind of being relived and repackaged. Uh, the telescopic idea is that it projects into the future. Um, And shout out to my wife who, I can't remember which of us, I feel like just in our shared life, we developed what we call the spiral view of history by virtue of celebrating the various Jewish feasts and obscure Christian holidays. Just in the form of our life, we came to see history as spiral together. So whenever the word spiral comes up, I I have fond memories of, of exploring cosmic history with my wife and endless parties. Does she listen to this podcast? <laughs> you know, she's got <laughs> five kids to deal with and uh, and so on. Um, Scott McKnight, in the oft-quoted book in this series, Revelation for the Rest of Us, he says these judgments describe the complete, perfect erasure of evil. And that's a good thing. What do these judgments accomplish? They are investigative, and they are a mercy for those who will, will repent. The world doesn't repent, and they actually to the point that they asked the rocks to cover them rather than for God to save them. Um, But for those who repent, they are a mercy. I think a really neglected doctrine is the fear of the Lord. It's it's cliche. You've never said that on this show before. (laughs) It's cliche in the sense that, you know, it comes up in church a lot, et cetera. But it, it is really important. I've been convicted of a lack of it actually in the last year or so, and I'm uh, meditating on it, reading books on the subject, and asking God for more of it. And it's one of the fruits of reading this book. We should have a, a proper fear of the Lord. Um, these judgments are imminent. They're bittersweet. They're mm. answers to prayers for justice, and they are divine judgment. The other thing I want to say about the judgments, um, you know, really zeroes in on the seals which start in Revelation chapter 6. And look at them. 
you have the first thing that happens, right, is a conquering army goes out to ravage the world. And then you have war break out with the second seal. You have in the third seal, famine. In the fourth seal, you have plague and wild beasts. You know, in the fifth, you have those who are slain for Christ being given a white robe, which every time white robes come back from this moment on in the book of Revelation, you know what happened. Someone was slain. And then you have earthquakes. And, uh, you know, when it says the sun turned black and the moon turned red, since the the backdrop of what the sixth seal is what I think are like um, natural disasters. I think that's actually most likely like, you know, volcanic stuff making crops fail and which is mm. a huge, you know, look at the collapse of almost any uh, pre-industrial civilization and something happens somewhere to disrupt baseline food production. And it's usually a volcano. And what those do is turn the moon and sky the moon and stars get dark. Um, so go check out uh, the Viking stuff on Ragnarok if you want to know more about that. And then as this is going on, it pivots over to the people in power who are being humbled by what Tim Mackey calls a tragically average day on earth. <laughs> War, famine, death, natural disasters, tragically average. And what I love that you see the kings of the earth saying is, uh, the great day of wrath has come, and they're right. This is the whole, uh, look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, build your house upon the rock, because when the storm will come, and like, basically, uh, there is an eschatological day of the Lord. It is an event in history, and it's where we're going. And then there are for us personally, you don't know when the day of your testing will come when the storm will come and you have these kings realizing that whatever it was, a war, a a crop harvest, a revolution, a plague, like the day of the Lord was there and it was laying bare their work. So it's like what you could say, one thing you could say out of Revelation 6 and then the other cycles, you know, um, the, the trumpets start to layer over this and it goes on and on is that you actually have earthly tragedy recast as God shaking people to bring them out of allegiance to Babylon into the kingdom of God, and actually it's salvation. And it's an amazing picture if you go, you know, if if we could teleport back to 2020 and all of this is happening. There's a plague, and then there's empires going crazy, and there's war, and there like it's all happening. And lots of people actually were looking at Revelation, going, "What's happening?" And lots of people were concluding, "Well, I think this must be the end times," you know, in a Tim LaHaye version. And Christ might be coming back soon. I was like, "Okay, just pause, pause on that for a second. For sure, what's happening is that this is a th- we are experiencing bad things, disasters." that God allows so that we can realize how fragile our lives are and submit them to Christ, that we can come out of our allegiance to the world. So in every, you know, what's amazing when you look at the judgments in terms of world history, it's not uh, not 
for nothing that basically every age of people has been able to apply the judgments to their time. They're supposed to work that way and to show us our time as the time of testing our lives as being designed to draw us out of the world, which is in this present age, which is passing away into the age to come by following Jesus. So next episode, we are going to talk about the 10 interludes and maybe some of the most famous images throughout these judgments and probably get into some of the things that you've been waiting for us to talk about, the triple six number and things like that, all the all the things that have occupied the imagination of the public. Uh, we want to end this conversation with an exhortation. The time is short. Now is the time to repent. You are living in the end times, regardless of how long until how long it is until Jesus returns for his bride. Your time is short, whether it's his return tomorrow or your death. If you, any number of hours to years from now, the time is short. And now is the time to repent. This book should give us a sense of urgency. We talk about it so often on this podcast, but the Jesus prayer should be the daily prayer of the Christian. Um, We shouldn't feel scared. We should feel the fear of the Lord, but we shouldn't feel scared because we are hidden in Christ. Even now, we are becoming the reconstituted divine council. And even here on earth, we get to participate in that reigning with Christ. And it's flawed. It's now and not yet. But our imagination should even now begin to be conformed, transformed, uh, to see the great spiritual cosmic battle and song of praise that we are caught up in. Uh, as the church, we really are the light of the world. We expose darkness. We are, we are God's agents that go and minister and bring the presence of God. So my encouragement for you is to go back to the beginning of this conversation, these seven churches, and to prayerfully read through the letters to the seven churches and to ask a few questions like, Holy Spirit, which of these sins are currently operating in my life? Where do you want to convict me of sin? And to go through the process of confession, you might confess directly to God, you might ask for help to have someone in a priestly way, witness your confession, but to confess and to repent, to turn around. What is the invitation away away from that sin to the way of the Lamb? And I also encourage you as you're reading through these letters to ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of righteousness. Those encouragements can be for you in your life now, in your church now, in your family now. So where's the Holy Spirit convicting you of righteousness? Where is he saying, well done, you are being faithful? You have little power, but you are being faithful. You are poor, but you are being faithful. You are resisting the temptation or the call to false teachings that are permeating your church now, but you are being faithful and you are interceding on behalf of that church and so on. So I invite you to go to those seven letters to the churches and to pray through them. They apply to your life now.